to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. For generations of Americans, especially those living in rural areas, one of the most exciting and anticipated times of the year was the day the circus came to town. Circuses were among the few forms of mass entertainment that appealed to both children and adults, and their enormous popularity lasted almost 150 years. The latest book by Les Standiford, Battle for the Big Top, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the Death-Defying Saga of the American Circus, which focuses on the circus's both entertainment and commerce, is published by Public Affairs, and I'm very pleased that it brings Les Standiford to our show now. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Can we trace the beginnings of the circus to ancient times? All the way back, uh, really, to uh, Greek and Roman times when... Uh, the spectacle was staged in coliseums, and what you might watch were gladiatorial battles or an emperor stalking uh, lions and tigers uh, through a made-up forest. Or sometimes they'd flood the arena and uh, reenact uh, naval battles with actual gunfire, which they hoped would stay on the water and not fly into the seats. Didn't always work, but. Uh, so it what did they exciting. have in common with modern circuses? Well, uh, the communal spectacle, we've done away, uh, the violence uh, uh, fell away from the, uh, the circus as, as, it, uh, as it developed on in through the Middle Ages. There were acrobats walking uh, tightrope stretched between uh, ship's masts in Constantinople in the Middle Ages in the uh, uh, in, in England, uh, where the circus really regained its, uh, its uh, uh, momentum in the 18th century. It was mostly hmm. horsemanship. Retired uh, cavalry officers would uh, uh, present examples of their expertise in public. And when it came to the... Uh, it uh, came over to the United States. It was mostly a reflection of that sort of thing. Uh, George Washington's cousin was a circus man, and George mm -hmm. Washington attended very happily one of the uh, the first circus presentations in in the United States. But uh, the American circus, as we know it, really developed uh, in the eighteen hundreds, and probably the prime mover uh, was the inclusion of elephants. Uh, you know, elephants uh, and clowns said P.T. Barnum are the pegs upon which the the circus uh, is hung. Well, going back to England in the 18th century, uh, there's a man named Philip Astley, one of the contributors to the development of the modern circus. Didn't he set up a performance arena in a, in a field near Westminster Bridge and uh, that uh, and was the first to realize that riding horses in a circle creates centrifugal force. He uh, uh, is the fellow who's credited with figuring out that the optimum diameter of that circus ring to this day is 42 feet, because that maximizes when a horse is running around in a circle that tight, it maximizes the centrifugal force that helps keep the, the rider on the back of the horse and allows uh, people to stand uh, bareback, uh, you know, top a, a horse bareback and, and 
performing somersaults and come down right back where they, uh, you know, left the horses back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sort of amazing. And that, of course, was trial and error. But uh, once they discovered that, and that's that's held to this day, if you go to a circus ring and measure it, you'll see what uh, the same measurement that Philip Astley had way back when. Because of the horses or just because it's become tradition? Because of the uh, speed at which most horses can run at, uh, at that in such in such a circle, that yeah. that's how, you know, that's how it uh, maximizes that centrifugal force. A horse's then, maximum speed in, in that in that diameter. And then there was uh, a performer named Joey Grimaldi who's, uh, from the 19th century who was incredible influence. He'd performed in vaudeville shows, um, and and he brought the concept of the of the circus clown into the circuses. That's right. His name was Joseph, and he was nickname was Joey, and uh, he was so good that uh, to this day, the slang term for a clown in in the circus is the Joey. Bring the Joeys uh-huh. in. He was he? Uh, by all accounts he could move adults and children to. Uh, to tear. Actually, uh, the the uh, kids would be laughing and many of the adults crying because of the pathos he was able to bring to his his roles, having dialogue with fish and well, you name it. He was he was uh, uh, a master of his craft. And he established uh, the makeup look that has become standard for clowns over the years. The makeup uh, got broader. Uh, over time, as the as the clowns lost their ability to to speak, Leonard, they um, uh, in the in the early days when clown, clowns were there uh, for a very practical purpose to cover up the dead time while a new act was being mm-hmm. being ready, and uh, they would sometimes come out and do stand up uh, monologues. And uh, as the uh, as as the circus acts uh, matured and you had two and then three uh, rings full of activity at once, you didn't need the clowns uh, to perform skits like they do on uh, like they might on television, but just to visually uh, divert uh, an audience. And so they went mute and. And they became mimes uh, in the uh, early part of the 19th, 19th century. And because they weren't speaking, uh, it became more important for them to be, for their costumes to be more noticeable and the lips and the eyes, uh, you know, to be exaggerated with uh, make pancake makeup uh, and the like. That's where that comes from. What about tightrope walking, uh it's called phenambulism. Uh, doesn't that ba- date back to ancient Greece? So where does a, a Frenchman named Blondin uh, come into the story? Well, as I said, the uh, uh, yes, there were there was tightrope walk, walking, acrobatics, and and juggling to the to the beginning of time. These are not high tech enterprises, and uh, and yet fell away through the. Uh, uh, shortly after the fall of the Roman and the Greek Empire, and when those uh, Armenian acrobats in the uh, in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries began to tour Europe again, uh, 
they uh, often toured on shi- the ships and the simplest way to, simplest way to mount a wire aloft uh, or a rope uh, aloft upon which to walk was to stretch it between two ship's masts as opposed to the trouble of getting up to some high building where there might not be another high building in close proximity. Uh, and, uh, and it was popularized there, stuck, came back uh, uh, to the circus and uh, it became really uh, featured again as far as the American circus, although it, it lived on in, in freeform vaudeville from the days from from the days of the Greeks. Well, Blondin uh, performed a stunt that really captured the the public's imagination. He, wasn't he the first to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls? Well, Blondin uh, was. Uh, it's Blondin, not Blondin. Okay, I guess I was. My, my Blondin or Blondin, uh, 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 however you want to uh, pronounce it, his. He popularized it in a way in the United States in a way it never had had been before when he walked across the uh, Niagara Falls Gorge and an act that was that was witnessed, you know, covered by every major news uh, organization that you can imagine such a thing had never been uh, done before and an inspired uh, all the likes of Carl Walenda was his direct uh, descendant who, uh, in fact, died uh, walking a rope stretched between two buildings in uh, Puerto Rico in the 19, 1970s. Uh, Blondine crossed uh, a, a, a river gorge in North Carolina that was deeper and broader than than. Uh, than the Niagara crossing of Blondine, but Blondine, of course, the guy who, who did it first and goes down and will go down in history. And he repeated the stunt many times, including pausing once in the middle to sit down and drink a beer. And uh, well, he helped, he got out to the middle on that, on that first cross, got out to the, the middle of the rope that crossed the, uh, uh, Niagara Gorge, and down below the, was the Maid of the Mist, uh, and or its predecessor, and uh, he lowered a rope that he'd been carrying, coiled on his shoulder, down to down to the ship. They uh, tied a bottle of wine to the rope. He hauled it up, uh, drank a toast to the crowds uh, uh, <laughs> on below and on on either shore, and of course they responded in, in kind. It was, you know, it was quite the showman's moment. A lot of French uh, pioneers here are French aerialists whose name people will recognize. Jules Leotard originally performed his acrobatic routine suspended over a swimming pool. Uh, and, and didn't that evolve into what we now call the flying trapeze? That he was the, uh, he invented the flying trapeze. First, uh, doing flips and so forth uh, between bars uh, over a swimming pool, where if he fell, he he wouldn't be hurt, and uh, then got good enough to do it without the safety net of the pool uh, below him, and became the the uh, precursor of you know the daring young man on the flying trapeze, immortalized in the uh, in the circus. 
Well, how did his name, Leotard, come to be the the, the name of the uh, the tight-fitting one-piece gym outfit that now <laughs> bears his name? Uh, well, just because uh, he wore something that no one had ever seen before. It was striking. It was visually uh, appealing. So Leotard uh, uh, became the shorthand for him. How was Isaac Van Amberg able to enter a cage filled with lions, leopards, and panthers without getting hurt? That must have shocked people when he first pulled it off. Well, especially when he put his head into the mouth of a lion. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, uh, very few people. Uh, this was uh, at a time we take zoos as a commonplace today. And we've seen any number of lions and tigers uh, in the movies, none, you know, on the Disney Channel and uh, National Geographic and so forth. So uh, people are fairly familiar with wildlife and, and particularly uh, lions and tigers that obviously you wouldn't get very close to in the wild. At the time that they were being that they were first exhibited in what they call menageries, uh, uh, on display as an ancillary to the uh, circus and then later worked into the circus acts. This was the only way, it's the first time that a number of people had seen such creatures uh, up close. And uh, to uh, it, was, it was literally astonishing, not only to see these things and to sense their power when they roared, uh, but to see a, a human being actually get in a cage with them and do things like <laughs> uh, wrestle with them, uh, uh, put a head, uh, you know, inside their jaws. This was, this was literally astonishing. To How did he train them? Yeah. What's that? How did he train them to not do what their instincts would have had them do, which is, to bite off his head or to, yeah. to scratch him or to, to hurt him in some way. Well, you know, uh, Leonard, your question goes to the very heart of the appeal of the circus. Yes, of course. Uh, That's how what I'm on earth can that happen? That's impossible. I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, it's just one more aspect. Of, uh, of what you got three or four hours of on one of those hot summer afternoons when you'd been working the previous 51 weeks out in the fields trying to you know keep body and soul together. And then you went in and saw uh, an array of athletic and exotic uh, feats that you simply did not, until you'd seen them with your own eyes, believe would be, would be possible. Athletic and other ones. Go ahead. Weren't there two uh, styles in effect for a long time? Uh, traveling menageries with wild animal acts, uh, which were entirely distinct from European style circuses that featured jugglers, acrobats, and, and trick riders. Was uh, it an American innovation to combine the two? Yes, pretty much. The, uh, that, that was part of the Americanization of the circus. And uh, Barnum, of course, uh, P.T. Barnum, uh, who came, by the way, came to the circus quite late in the 1870s. The circus was going strong uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S., as I said, from the turn of the century. Really followed at 
right along with the expansion of the American frontier. There were about 50 shows uh, at the height of the circus, uh, smaller shows at the height of the circus industry, following the ever-expanding network of railroads and, and highways that pushed ever, ever westward. Now, uh, I want my audience to know that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Les Stanford, whose latest book is Battle for the Big Top, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the Death-Defying Saga of the American Circus. Uh, now, the, those, those are the three men most associated with the American Circus, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, and John Ringling. They were sometimes rivals, but sometimes partners. How did that work? Well, they, uh, Bailey was the, uh, the first of the circus giants. He was a detail uh, genius, uh, a uh, planning uh, genius. I mean, it takes quite a bit to, uh, uh, it took, particularly in those days, quite a bit to move around a tent that could hold seven, eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people, the bleachers that fit within it, the lights uh, that would light it, the source of power that would drive it, the uh, sessions uh, and uh, the mess uh, tent, the animals, the uh, performers, the to set up the sideshow to do all the advanced publicity which was necessary in a time before mass advertising it uh, uh bailey was the first guy who proved to be a genius in putting that all together and able to move an enormous uh modern uh or modern uh, let's call it modern for the time circus that traveled on on rail and uh, because they had traveled by wagons until then, before yeah, in the early days, wasn't that difficult by... because the roads weren't so good and they were carrying some pretty heavy stuff. Well, monumentally uh, 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 difficult. One of the uh, most interesting passages to me that I researched and, and passed along in the uh, book was a fellow named Coop writing about being part of one of the wagon shows crossing the uh, Kansas, uh, Missouri Prairie, Western Prairie, when uh, they noticed some smoke behind them and realized that they were being chased by a prairie fire that in all likelihood would burn them and everything else in its path up. A rather astonishing story of how they, how they escaped that. But uh, aside from, you know, those life-threatening moments, there was just the terrible agony of trying to, uh, usually you were moving all your stuff from one whistle stop to the next overnight. You usually, in the hustings, you only played one night. You played a venue one night, and then you packed up everything and moved on to the next place in time for an afternoon show and then an evening show. And uh, uh, given the fact that most roads uh, were mud, were dirt, which turned to mud with the first rain, uh, and the bridges were some, uh, sometimes you were fording streams rather than crossing them on bridges. Well, you can just imagine how difficult that was. So the ability uh, to map out a route was a real uh, prized skill, and that's one of the things that uh, 
Bailey became known known for early on in his career, and that really kind of propelled him to the top. He ended up taking shows to the Antipodes, to uh, uh, Australia uh, and New Zealand. Brought him, brought that his uh, on ships, and then brought those ships back to to South America. Uh, and, and, and didn't he into didn't he inter- introduce the, the elephants into the circus? Uh, no, no. Uh, the elephants came into the circus right after the uh, the uh, turn of the century. There hadn't uh, been an elephant in the United States seen in the United States before 1796. But the first elephant uh, was old Bet, who came along uh, I, in the first decade of the of the new century. Hakaliah. Well, uh, uh, Bailey was the guy. I was uh, thinking of James uh, or, Bailey's uh, the huge uh, Indian elephant babe uh, that gave birth <laughs> the first calf for that ever was uh, born in captivity in the United States. And and didn't Barnum offer to purchase babe calf for the then astronomical sum of a hundred thousand dollars? Well, yes, you were asking earlier about how Bailey uh, turned from. Uh, a competitor of Barnum, uh, how Barnum and Bailey became partners. Uh, Barnum had been approached uh, in the early 1870s by uh, the same fellow who nearly got burned up out in the prairie, W.C. Coop, and another partner. Uh, they knew him as a showman who had a kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not emporium in uh, Manhattan for a number of years and who'd become famous for ex- exhibiting such uh, human curiosities or oddities were some of the euphemisms that they used that freaks back in those days, not right. a politically correct term these days. That's how uh, Barnum had become famous. And well, he, uh, he, uh, he, he, he purchased a blind and partially paralyzed slave woman named Joyce Heth in 1835. He did. That was his uh, and, and entry she, into show business. And didn't he uh, claim that she was 161 years old and be, had been the nursemaid to George Washington? Well, he wasn't the first. He bought the act from another man who'd been claiming it all along. And hmm. Barnum, uh, to his dying day, uh, claimed that he didn't know any better. But uh, although some called him cynical about that, he did admit, look, if you came and you saw Joyce Heth, and you felt you got your money's worth in the end. Isn't that all that's important that you felt that you were fairly and justly entertained and you could almost believe she had been that she was that old and had been the nursemaid to to General uh, George Washington. You know, people like to attribute that quote. There's a sucker born every minute to Barnum, but he was nowhere in my estimation, nowhere near that cynical. That quote was actually uttered by a competitor of uh, Barnum's who was annoyed that the competitor had had been exhibiting something called the Cardiff Man, a so-called uh, prehistoric man that had been discovered, nothing but a, but a fake, a, a statue carved and, and then uh, distressed to make it look old. And, uh, and Barnum came along, tried to buy it from him. The guy wouldn't sell, so Barnum created his own version of the uh, Cardiff giant. And then, of course, because Barnum was such a good PR man, people uh, began to flock to his exhibition and leave the other poor guy in the dust. And his grumble about that was, there's a sucker born every minute. 
the suckers being those who were leaving his show, <laughs> his phony show, and going over to see Barnum's display. <laughs> Uh, now, so there's an irony, but I, I truly believe that uh, about Barnum, that he uh, he was not the kind of person who looked down upon either his audience or upon the people who worked for him. He may not have had any great affinity uh, and, you know, natural uh, born affinity to want to go out and help these uh, human uh, oddities lead a better life. But uh, when they became in his employ, uh, he did treat them well. They uh, they became his uh, friends, and he treated them uh, with with respect. Well, since slavery had already been outlawed in New York, how was he able to exploit a loophole which allowed him to lease Joyce Heth in 1835? Well, his uh, uh, Barnum didn't buy a person. He you know he didn't purchase. He leased her. Uh, he he purchased the right to exhibit Joyce Joyce Heth. So he never owned her. He owned the act and the rights to uh, present her. She could not, uh, by the terms of the contract, go out and uh, display herself for profit. She'd signed a contract with uh, Barnum for that. However, however. Researchers found that for a very short period of time in the late 1830s, early 1840s, Barnum had owned uh, at least two slaves who were conveyed to him as part of a larger uh, uh, real estate transaction. He actually kept these people uh, for uh, two or three months before uh, he uh, he divested himself. By the time the Civil War uh, came around. Uh, however, Barnum had become an ardent abolitionist and supporter of the of the Union cause. Uh, so, if he had made mistakes, he was certainly repentant for them. Well, he did get into politics late at a certain yeah. point in his life. Oh, yeah. Served two elected terms to, in the Connecticut. Go ahead. Hmm. Elected to Congress from from Connecticut. Yeah, and mayor of Bridgeport at one point. But in yeah. 1841, he purchased the American Museum of Downtown uh, in downtown Manhattan. Uh, and didn't he introduce another hoax there, a creature with a body of a monkey and the tail of a fish <laughs> known as the Fiji mermaid? Also uh, exhibited Charles Stratton, uh, a little person who he named General Tom Thumb, a four-year-old who he claimed was 11. That uh, that's right. The Fiji mermaid. Uh, he had a naturalist come in and examine it. And the guy said, "This is not a mermaid." The, <laughs> the scientist and uh, and Barnum says, "Well, how do you know it's not a mermaid?" And the naturalist said, "Well, well, for one thing, I don't believe in mermaids." And Barnum's response was, "Well, I do, and I'm going to exhibit it." <laughs> And that's uh, that was pretty much uh, summed up his his attitude. He invited the scientists to disprove the the validity of the creature, but the guy couldn't do, you know couldn't come up with a way to do it. He couldn't. It was so ingeniously it was half orangutan and half sturgeon. People believe and put together, sewn together so artfully that nobody could really uh, see the obvious uh, stitchings and so forth. And it was very popular. It was very popular. Uh, uh, exhibition, and uh, but far and away, the uh, 
exhibition that put Barnum on the map was General Tom, whom he called Crescent General uh, Tom Thumb. Uh, this little person, uh, a proportionate dwarf in, in circus uh, parlance, a midget. Uh, uh, he uh, put on display not only at his emporium in Manhattan, but took him on tour around the United States to great acclaim. And then ultimately to the Royal Palace uh, in London, where Queen Victoria pronounced herself thoroughly charmed uh, by uh, Tom Thumb. And Thumb uh, became devoted to Barnum, credited him for giving him the kind of life and uh, that he never would have experienced otherwise. Uh, he, Thumb, became the toast of European royalty, made uh, ultimately became a 50-50 partner with uh, Barnum, made a lot of money, uh, bought uh, and built houses from uh, uh, impressive uh, mansions, really, for himself and family in uh, Connecticut, and by all accounts, lived a very happy life. But but uh, did uh, Barnum? Uh, he was the uh, he was the exhibition that that made Barnum famous. And and Barnum went from exhibiting to actually creating a circus, P.T. Barnum's Great Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome, which opened on a field in Brooklyn in 1871. So that's the uh, that was the result of W.C. Coop and his partners' overture to Barnum. Look, you do what you do pretty well. Why don't you uh, join us in the circus business and? Uh, Barnum, had, uh, he had traveled with Tom Thumb and uh, he had had this oddity laced uh, emporium in, in lower Manhattan, but he'd never really been part of a circus. He traveled in vaudeville for a while back in the 1830s with a juggler uh, uh, and uh, uh, as an adjunct to Joyce Heth, but uh, he had never been a part of the circus before. And 1871 was the day that the, that you mentioned is, is dates the beginning of his involvement with the American circus. Is that one ring or three ring circus? When did uh, the three at that time it was go? it was one ring. The uh, he and uh, and Bailey came up with the idea. Uh, they had too much talent and mm -hmm. to uh, uh, do it all justice. And uh, together they came up with the idea of having two rings full of uh, activity going at once. That was in the later uh, in that decade of the 1870s or in, in the 1880s after Bailey and Barnum uh, got together. And what got uh, Bailey and Barnum together was that elephant that you mentioned before. When uh, uh, Barnum heard the news that one of Bailey's elephants had given birth, the first calf, elephant calf born in the United States, he sent this telegram to Bailey offering to buy it for what uh, Bailey uh, termed a king's ransom, $100,000. And what and Bailey outfoxed him immediately the next day after uh, Barnum sent that telegram, I'll buy that, that cap for $100,000. Uh, James Bailey had advertisements placed in the leading newspapers across the country with a facsimile of uh, featuring a facsimile of Barnum's uh, telegram saying, come to the Bailey circus to see the elephant that PT Barnum himself would pay a King's ransom for. 
And uh, this uh, Barnum uh, was, of course, chagrined uh, that somebody had put it over on him for a change, but that didn't last long. What he did was seek a meeting with Bailey and where he told him, you're pretty good. Why don't we uh, join our, uh, put our talents together and create, well, what became the greatest show on earth. And we'll continue that conversation after we take a little break here on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Talking with Les Standiford, whose uh, previous books include The Man Who Invented Christmas about Charles Dickens, which was made into a feature film starring Christopher Plummer. He's also written Last Train to Paradise, Meet You in Hell, Bringing Adam Home, and the book that we are discussing now, Battle for the Big Top, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the Death-Defying Saga of the American Circus, which is published by Public Affairs. Let's talk about a little more about those uh, elephants. Um, the public is fascinated by them. Are they easy to train? Well, uh, they're possible to train, obviously. And uh, some people uh, believe that elephants actually like enjoy get some enjoyment out of performance uh, i suppose in the same way that same some uh pet dogs do uh, the thing the, the reason that they became a part of the circus in the first place was not so much what they could be trained to do but just do uh, to the uh, their sheer size to stand next to an elephant, if you never have, uh, to stand next to an elephant is itself an exercise in impossibility. You, you look at this thing, you feel the earth move if it, if it so much as shuffles its feet, and you say to yourself something, and you says, I believe, how is such a thing possible? And that's part and parcel of what I believe the appeal, you know, the central appeal, uh, central appeal of the circus to be. And, and the, uh, over, Ringling over Brothers time, Bonham and Bailey, when Ringling Brothers Bonham and Bailey used to perform at Madison Square Garden, the old Madison Square Garden, they had, before you went uh, to see the show, you would go through the area where all the animals were kept and stood next to the cages with the elephants and the ones with the tigers. That was part of the appeal, especially for kids like oh, me. Yeah. It certainly now, was. But they would use, uh, in the early days of the circus, the uh, the elephants would plod along with the wagons uh, train as they were moving uh, from place to place. And the first trick, so to speak, that the elephants uh, were used uh, uh, to perform was the trick of pushing or pulling a stuck wagon out of a mud hole uh, somewhere along the uh, this miserable trail that the wagon train had to take to get to the next place. 
And, uh, you know, there were elephant handlers, but mostly, you know, their job in the early days, their job was just to take to be uh, not to be afraid of these creatures, intimidated by them and and learn how to get them to follow along. And then uh, well, then they found out, oh, well, we can use these things as kind of bulldozers. Uh, they would help uh, another. They would when the when tents when the big tops came into uh, fashion during the 30s and the 40s then they uh, uh in order they used the elephants to help pull the uh, big guy ropes uh tight to raise the uh, the canvas uh, atop the poles <clears throat> and from right. those utilitarian purposes they figured out well, wait a minute these things could probably learn how to you know balance on each other's backs with you know two paws or yeah. two two uh, uh, feet on the backs of the next one, and we can have a parade. They can ultimately, George uh, Ringling, uh, commission, John Ringling in the 20th century, commissioned Balanchine to compose an opera that could be performed by elephants. And well, Igor Stravinsky wrote the music, Balanchine uh, choreographed it and directed it. Right. Excuse and me. It, yeah. it involved yeah. it is a ballet involving fifty elephants. If you can imagine such a thing, wow. you're absolutely right. And uh, uh, none other than the likes of the poet Marianne Moore actually went to witness this <laughs> spectacle and it's pronounced the circus thoroughly, thoroughly charmed. Hmm. Uh, well, why was the London Zoo willing to sell its star attraction, an African male elephant named Jumbo, to, to Barnum? Uh, didn't thousands of English uh, children write to the zoo and to the Queen asking them not to sell Jumbo? Oh, yes, it's true. The uh, By all accounts, it was the most popular creature in the London Zoo. And, uh, of course, uh, Barnum thought, well, if it's the most popular creature in all of London, that would probably, in all of Great Britain, that would probably make a, a, quite the attraction for my circus. And he made an offer. Some think uh, it wasn't a cold offer that he had gotten word that as that elephant had gotten older, it had become a little more uh, a temperamental and difficult for the zoo to handle. And they were a little worried uh, about liability and, and, and danger. And so that that was one reason why certain people, at least within the uh, power structure at the zoo, were willing to listen to Barnum. And then when he upped his offer uh, to the point uh, that almost no one could confuse it, uh, refuse it, they, they said, fine, we'll let, we'll let it go. But even so, uh, it was uh, oh, there was a great hue and cry, public mourning, marches of protest when Jumbo uh, left the the circus, and uh, Jumbo had to be tricked, in fact, to leave his cage and get in the uh, the uh, transport cage. He, he didn't want to go either. Well, he debuted in Madison Square Garden in New York and then toured with Barnum Circus. Uh, wasn't his skeleton donated to the American Museum of Natural History? Yes, it, it was on it display for there? a while. I, I, they still own it. They still own the skeleton. Uh, it, I don't believe that it's been on display for uh, a number of, of years. The, uh, I think they just believe that there are other elephant skeletons elsewhere. But, uh, 
you'd have to ask them. But uh, it uh, the uh, uh, it was uh, an immensely popular. The the creature was an immensely popular uh, feature for for Barnum. As you know, another one of his quotes is when attempting to entertain the American public, it is best to have an elephant. <laughs> now, the elephants are part of the parades, the elaborate parades that uh, went through various towns, including New York City, uh, a kind of form of advertising that the circus had arrived. Oh, for years, that was the parade of elephants uh, uh, that kicked off the week long uh, I think it was a week-long engagement, uh, typically there, even uh, well into the uh, the 20th century at Madison Square Garden, was the trooping of the elephants through the tunnel uh, to the garden. Now, were the Ringling Brothers actual brothers? Oh, yeah. There were seven of them. Seven Ringling Brothers uh, who began, uh, they went to see a circus that came on a riverboat, uh, and down the Missouri and, and close to their small town, uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin. And they went to see it. And as kids do, they said to themselves, well, why don't we put on a circus? And in short order, they did. And it was that they had the family goat and John Ringling, who was one of the younger, uh, played a clown. And one of the kids uh, could play the trumpet. And they had a parade with a pony and a goat and uh, all of them dressed up in the best they could do uh, by way of circus costumes and and friends and neighbors actually paid five cents to uh, go in and watch this and they made a couple of dollars and they said hey there's something in this and, and they eventually ring merged when barnum died in 1891 they merged with uh, with barnum circus they it they became they were the upstart uh, company through the eighties and the nineties, and uh, finally got good enough to go up against uh, Barnum. There was some real competition there uh, in the late eighties and the early nineties, and uh, uh, Bailey. I mean, there Bailey fought it for as long as he could. He even took uh, the Barnum Bailey Circus to Europe for about five years while Ringling. Uh, took over the circus business toward the end of the 20th, 19th century in the United States. And by the time he came back, he was about worn out. And early in the 20th century, he sold out. Bailey sold uh, uh, out to the, the Ringlings. For the next 10 or 12 years, the two shows operated separately. Ringlings ran the uh, you know, the Barnum and Bailey Circus still had its own identity and traveled separately. And right after the close of the First World War, when uh, manpower shortages became acute, uh, it was John Ringling who came up with the idea to combine the shows. And from uh, then on, it became the, the Barnum and Bailey, uh, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey combined shows. And they, uh, but they, the uh, two circuses continued, two major circuses continued to travel uh oh well right up to the end uh, right up till 2017 there were still two productions two separate productions of the combined shows that uh, ran with different themes and so people could actually go see the circus twice 
right up right up to the end uh, uh, without being bored. The idea was to not be bored, not feel like you'd already seen it, to to be able to play two dates in the same city and and maximize profit. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Les Standiford, whose latest book is Battle for the Big Top, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the Death-Defying Saga of the American Circus, published by Public Affairs. Uh, you actually attended the final performance of The Greatest Show on Earth in 2017. Um, and then it stopped, although there uh, are... Aren't there still some regional circuses remaining? And uh, is New York's Big Apple Circus still around? I don't know if Big Apple has performed since COVID. I don't. I'm not sure any circus uh, has yet. There was, but as far as I know, Big Apple is still organized. There are a couple of similar regional uh, circuses out in the uh, one in the in San Francisco and uh, one up around Fort Bragg in california there's cirque soleil which uh it's it was shuttered uh teetering on uh financial collapse owing to covid has no animals it's all acrobats uh and high wire performers and glittering uh uh, costumes and then uh, all their other vestigial remains if you watch an episode of America's Got Talent, probably half the uh, acts are straight out of the uh, straight out of the circus. But why do you think they uh, have kind of? How do you attribute the decline of the circus? Was it the dangers? For example, you described many devastating fires, including at both of Barnum's two American museums. Oh uh, uh, yeah, traditional fire tracks. Fire was the bane of the the circus, just because the big top was flammable. All the straw and the hay were flammable. Uh, in the early days, they used to uh, the uh, the circus was lit at night by gas lamps. It's uh, it's a surprise that there weren't even more fires. The worst was the Hartford Fire, 1944, uh, which so many people were killed. Still, a part of Hartford uh, uh, history that's memorialized every every year uh but fired emmett kelly and uh, emmett kelly and the flying willenders were there that day but oh, they, yes, they were famous photograph of you know that crying face of emmett kelly rushing toward this conflagration with a couple of buckets of water in his hands uh really a, a sad moving uh tableau that one and and several circus officials were charged with involuntary manslaughter did anyone go to jail yeah, uh, the uh, a couple of them spent time. Uh, Ten months, I believe, was the the longest sentence. And the circus uh, paid fines and and paid them all. By the way, uh, continued to operate in order to earn enough money to pay out the yeah, liability claims. Yeah, yeah, they they were threatened. It looked like they were going to be shut down, but uh, the Ringling nephew uh, argued, "If you shut shut us down, we'll never be able to pay any of the claims." Uh, so uh, uh, the official state officials saw the sense in that, allowed them to keep going. And every claim that was ever filed, as far as I know, as, as far as I was able to find out, was paid. Did John Ringling North cooperate in the filming of the 1952 movie, The Greatest Show on Earth, which was directed by Cecil B. DeMille and starred Charlton Heston and Jimmy Stewart? 
Oh, he did indeed. Uh, they thought it would be great publicity for a an enterprise that was in competition with the movies, in fact, at that time, and had been wounded greatly uh, by it. People uh, were going to the movies more than they were going to the circus and watching TV, of course, in the 50s, more than they were going to the circus. Uh, it's, uh, you know, by all accounts, and uh, according to most critics, a reasonably uh, uh, able movie, recreation of the circus. My favorite uh, circus film is uh, Trapeze with Burt Lancaster and uh, Gina Lola Brigida, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> but uh, The Greatest Show on Earth won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the competition was pretty heavyweight. High Noon and Singing in the Rain were critics surprised. <laughs> that's pretty tall cotton, yeah. Mm. Well, that's, that's testament to the power, the power of the spectacle of the, of the circus. You know, some people say that, uh, that uh, the circus is real. The reason for its appeal is that it's really a little microcosm of the American experience. You know, anything can be, can, is possible here. And uh, two or three hours, three or four hours at the circus is a testament to that. Well, do animal rights advocates have a point where circus animals treated cruelly, especially when they were being trained to do things that weren't natural to them? Surely, and particularly in some of the smaller shows, uh, there was mistreatment of animals. It, it, it couldn't help but be. Back in the 1870s, you know, when Barnum was putting on a show uh, in New York, uh, he, the mayor, uh, or excuse me, the uh, president of the ASPCA called upon the uh, circus uh, to cease and desist from uh, what it called mistreatment of the horses in the show because they'd added an act where horses were said to be jumping through flaming hoops. Mm. And uh, uh, Barnum invited, he invited the president of the ASPCA over to the circus that that afternoon, and Barnum had the uh, the hoops, uh, the flames lit, and then Barnum himself went down into the ring and stepped on top over top of one of the flaming rings and stood there with these supposed flames curling up around him, and pointed out uh, to the president of the ASPCA that these were not flames at all, but flying uh, sparkling confetti that looked like flames uh, and they didn't harm anybody. The upshot of that meeting was that Barnum became a member of the National Board of Directors of the ASPCA and contributed considerably <clears throat> toward the, uh, the operations. He professed uh, great opposition to cruelty in animal treatment, but something you said gets to the heart of the matter whether or not the animals were treated uh, uh, in princely fashion or, or not just the fact that they were uh, held in that kind of captivity, uh, forced to travel uh, you know, on rail cars and other means of transport um, on almost a daily basis is admittedly not natural. And even uh, uh, Irving Feld who took over the show uh, uh, followed his father, who bought uh, bought out the Ringlings in 1957 uh, as operators of the of the circus. In in 20 
15 said, you know, you're right. We've got to divest ourselves of, of the elephants. We're going to do it. They were all sent away, uh, most of them to uh, 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 reserves, pre preserves here in the U.S. And uh, at that final show that you mentioned uh, uh, just a while ago, he came out and talked along with his whole family and all the descendants looked like the graduation class of a small high school somewhere, uh, 60 or 70 of them to talk about uh, how wonderful it had been. And he said that they had limped along from the beginning, from the time his father, Irwin, bought uh, the show back in the 50s to, the, to 2015, but they'd been able to manage it, been able to uh, eke out a uh, living in his terms. But when they gave up the elephants in 2016, uh, that was the end. He said attendance fell off a cliff. They couldn't even come close to uh, making what they needed uh, to keep going. So with the demise, with the departure of the elephants, uh, went any chance to make the circus viable. We're pretty much out of time, but uh, I was wondering whether audience members leave the circus with an enhanced opinion of animal intelligence. I mean, whoever thought that pigs could be trained? Yeah, I'll tell you, and, and the lion tamer came out at that same program and said, look, uh, at least for a large part of its existence, this was the first opportunity that people had to even uh, be aware of animals. And if their awareness of animals led to their activism uh, on support of humane treatment of animals, uh, support of well-run zoos, then uh, the circus performed a valuable function in, in that regard. My great thanks to you for being on our show. I've been speaking with Les Standiford, S-T-A-N-D-I-F-O-R-D. His latest book, Battle for the Big Top, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the Death-Defying Saga of the American Circus, published by Public Affairs. It's been a real pleasure. Mr. Lopate, I very much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour discussions on one subject, you can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll also find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to reach me directly, you can email me at leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now. We need your help to continue bringing you this unique in-depth content. And if you tune in regularly to London Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you enjoy listening to the show by doing that, going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station alive and thriving with your tax-deductible charitable donation. We are the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Uh, and that puts us in a bit of a bind, as I'm sure you can understand. WBAI 
need your help now more than ever because of the pandemic. Uh, we're not taking advertising. We don't take grants. So, and to everyone who has already stepped up to support the station, we thank you so much. Uh, support us in the name of London Lobet at Large. Uh, I hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Kevin Cook, who will discuss his new book, The Burning Blue, The Untold Story of Krista McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger Disaster. We'll see you then.